0: Welcome back to Free Will is a Scam, a philosophy podcast in which I talk with my siblings about great works of philosophy. And this week we read the work of Wang Yang Ming, a great Ming dynasty, Chinese philosopher. And we read in translation uh, excerpts from two of his works, one, The Inquiry on the Great Learning and the other, uh, Instructions for Practical Living and we read both out of Wang Chan's source book in Chinese philosophy. So here we go. We're going to get right into it. All right, should we do it? Uh, yes. Excellent. Here we are again this week or this last few weeks because we've taken a well-earned hiatus. We were right?
1: on vacation from our not, um, <laughs> what do you call it? Not monetized <laughs> philosophy. podcast. Yes.
0: Anyway, we read Wang Yangming's, uh, the excerpts from Wang, Yangwing, Wang Yangming's, uh, books, Inquiry on the Great Learning and, uh, sorry, and Instructions for Practical Living. Both of these came from a kind of classic translation by Wing Chan. um, in his collection on, on Chinese philosophy. Wang Yangming uh, was pr- easily the most important Ming-era Chinese philosopher of the Confucian school and tradition. And I would say the probably the only major figure to uh, provide an alternative view of the great learning after Zhu Xi, and Zhu Xi is really the one who, who since the 13th century has been the most important Confucian scholar and remains so. He kind of, uh, he was eclipsed by Wang Yangming for about 100, 150 years, but uh, certainly there was a resurgence of Zhu Xi school support in the Qing and in the modern era. And students today in China uh, know who Zhu Xi is. They, They read about him they don't so much learn much about Wang Yangming. uh, And I think that's actually a shame um, because I think he's got some good things to say. So these texts were both written in the early 16th century. And uh, yeah, anybody want to start it off with some thoughts?
1: One quick question. So he was late 15th or mid 15th century, you said?
0: Uh, late fifteenth, early sixteenth, yeah, okay. but and then his his popularity as a philosopher were uh, really emerged in the um the end of the sixteenth and and through the late Ming right period. So up through mid seventeenth century, he was still very popular until the Ming dynasty collapse. Uh, yeah, and I mean, culturally, we're talking about uh, consistency throughout the seventeenth century despite political collapse and and unrest the culture of that wang yangming from the confucian philosophy and kind of dominated remained pretty vibrant and and there are connections to it in art and poetry that are interesting Hmm. um approaches to art and poetry really reflect the values of wang yangming more so than they would reflect any kind of classic juicy great learning school um in that they're looking inward for their inspiration and their truth that they're trying to tell through their, their art, Got it. Uh, rather than, than, than Juicy's more, uh, externalized investigations.
1: Neat. Okay. I was just checking on the historical thing. Cause I understood that, um, and this is not very important and you can cut it out, but just that Ming dynasty fall was like really bad, <laughs> but I don't know much about it at all. So, um, that would be just like a random thought about why Wang Ming, Yang Ming wasn't as studied afterwards. It was maybe because he was dominant before the fall or something, but you know, you would know better than me and it was just a very, very loose speculation.
0: So I don't know enough about the shift away from him. I do know that he was, you know, as, as Wing Sit-Chan says, he was he was abused a little bit and a little excessively by Confucianists who lumped him a little too far in with the Buddhists. I don't, however, know if the movement away from him was wrapped up in the regime change. Uh, all I know is that Ju uh, Xi re- really emerged as as uh, Qing Orthodoxy, as the Qing exams, uh, imperial exams were uh, modeled after, after Juicy's uh, his uh, commentary tradition around the the, the classics, the classic mm-hmm. books, the Confucian classics. So, and then Confucian classics. Just for anybody who doesn't know that outside of this, um, we're talking about a book that wasn't quite as important or popular in Chinese philosophical Confucian philosophical tradition. The Great Learning, the Dashui. Uh, until Jushi uh, kind of made it really important. And it's attributed to Confucius by some. In fact, I, I think I sent you a translation that says it's by Confucius, but it, it, it's clearly not, uh, or, or maybe not clearly, but it's, it doesn't seem to be a text by Confucius. Um, Confucius is often given credit for lots of texts that, that we don't really know if he wrote or not or had anything to do with. Um, but it, it became with Juxi's, neo-confucian school a really central text Uh, and uh, as did uh, texts that were already important like confucius's analects or uh, the mencius texts among others and stuff
1: right and what is mencius's or mencius's place in all that
0: well so uh, mencius or mungza in the in the newer pinyin pronunciation, is is probably in some ways more important than Confucius in solidifying the the more accepted and more uh, central Confucian ideals of later imperial history in China. So, you know, Confucius is sort of considered an inceptor, but Confucius was really interpreting texts that are That fall under this Confucian umbrella, he was interpreting and working off of texts that were older than him, and saying, "Hey, let's go back to those. Those are great. Uh, That's what we're aspiring to." Um, And in his Analects and and in his his work, um, Mencius really is you know he's a couple hundred years after Confucius. He's he's like the third, fourth, fourth or third century BC. I can't remember exactly the dates, but um, he he brings Confucian philosophy to his own neighborhood and its own its own level. And again, it's sort of like the Neo-Confucian tradition is probably m- more accurately is, a, is, is branching off of a, a bigger stump that's Mencius than it is Confucius.
1: Okay, so Mencius could maybe be seen as like a St. Paul kind of figure to Jesus or like a Moses to Abraham or, you know, there's yep. usually like an establisher and then an interpreter
0: yeah, and teaching. it's funny that you say that, because I, I, at reading this, I really began to think of the Confucian tradition as really analogous to uh, a lot of European philosophy after Christianity, in that European philosophy tends to always be dealing with Christianity somehow, right? Right. And um, they're more explicit in Chinese philosophy, because so much of it is dealing directly with the Confucian texts but even with, you know, with some people we've read, among others, you know, like, like Nietzsche, who was clearly had some antipathy toward Christianity, right? Um, He, uh, he's responding to it. He's quoting, he's, he's, you know, he's pulling Christian um, texts into, into his his writing constantly. So there's always a, it's always there. It's always something you're responding to philosophically. And so, yeah, I was thinking about that a lot, but yeah, I think your analysis, your analysis, right, Micah, like, Mencius really is this first second figure, right? To come and interpret, right?
1: Yeah, because Taoism has it too with Lao Tzu and Swanson, right? In a way,
0: in a way, um, yeah. And the, my only hesitation is is to say that if we're talking about like the religion and around Taoism, then that's also a separate conversation which has its own inception much later, right? Uh, and, you know, after Zhuangzi, I mean.
2: Getting back, though, to the, like, swing against the Wang Yang Ming kind of way of looking at things. I don't remember the gentleman's name because it was open on a tab in my computer that's now gone. And I don't know that I could have pronounced it anyway. But it was a later student, I think a student and later follower of Wang Yang Ming who extended some of Wang Yang Ming's more egalitarian Um, ideas toward gender, the idea that women were capable of spiritual thought and dimension and that there wasn't anything essential to the genders that ought to exclude women from the same pursuit of study that men could engage in if you're aiming toward um, similar spiritual goals and and ideals of, um, you know, good character etc. And so this follower, whose name I wish I could remember, um, pushed it even further and actually taught women and hung out with prostitutes and was open about this and was ultimately put on trial for this and killed himself during the trial and had, you know, was quoted as having no regrets. But it seemed like perhaps this Follower pushing these ideas that Wang Yangming had had at least opened the door to and hadn't been resistant to but pushing it to a point where society was no longer going to tolerate exploration in that direction and that probably coincided with other political things which also coincided with the swing back toward traditional with a more capital T going back. Yeah, Wang Yangming
0: so that it makes sense that it would go that way, obviously, because there's this. In, in our text, there's the bit about um, criticism. There's several moments where, where the question is like, hey, some people have accused you of being this. What do you say to that? And one of them is, uh, how do you deal with accusations that you're just espousing Modes' universal love? So Modes is right. a, a um, philosopher from uh, 17, 1800 years before. Yeah. Um, who had a whole Moist school, and, and one of the big things was this sort of somewhat egalitarian universal love thing. Um, and they're like, well, what do you say about that? How do you deal with that? And he's like, well, the universality of love is the love that you find when you are when you find this truth of existence in yourself and you go into yourself and it's innate and it's there. Uh, the external expression has to start with, he says, instead of being dispersed without any, you um, without any structure and without any growth, he actually says, without growth, there's no roots. If you don't have a, a place for your love to, to root, it can't grow into anything. And for him, the root was was family, filial piety. Whereas for Moza, there is no root. It's just, you love everything equally. And so it's this sort of, uh, it's a rootless society that, 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 that Yang Ming suggests, uh, Wang Yang Ming suggests, can't grow, can't uh, progress. So progress has to come from somewhere is his ultimate point there. But in some ways, is that, you know, the question I have then is that, like, uh, is that him just trying to ease off of, of being too Moist and, and losing credibility? Uh, I don't know.
1: Well, it seemed like he was establishing his Confucian bona fides. You know, um, the filial piety business is so so like that's it's it's one of my least favorite philosophical things and <laughs> for various reasons and it's so like bedrock of confucian thought that it's not a surprise to me that he and i, I wouldn't want to speculate about his motives of course because he had this logical construction and the metaphor of the root but he certainly knew that if he if he gave up on filial piety as in loving your parents for your father really first, and then that being the root of your love for everything else, that he would be, um, he would have to know that that would be Moist and that would, no one would listen to him. Because nobody had listened to the Moists in 1700 years. So it was the, I, yes, really, exactly. I was really intrigued by the Moists when I read the Wang Ming. And so I went and I read the introduction to the Moist section of the same book. Um, And the author was saying something about, the uh, the editor, I guess, who does the commentary, was saying that people have become interested in Moism for superficial um, similarity to Christianity, but really it's nothing like that. And it was very shallow philosophy and it stopped existing after the third century BC or something like that. So you have to think that that something like that is going through Wang Ning's mind.
0: Yeah, definitely. He's, he, he can't lose his constituency entirely. (laughs) Like he's, he's still, he wants to be an important Confucian. Um, And I don't know, maybe this makes me question some of the things he, some of the constructions he had, like, um, you know, he's connecting action with, uh, with knowledge. And so if you're a sage in his, Estimation. Everything you're doing is is lined up with this perfectly natural quality of of existence that you only can get by looking inward. Um, but is he, you know, he? I don't think he interrogates enough how much of a of a construction that might be that suits his own uh, worldview, his own his own his own bias and ter- towards filial piety and towards uh, stable society. You know, why doesn't he just go full Zhuangzi here?
2: I think that he, I mean, Zhuangzi doesn't ask people to leave society, right? Like he grants that you can still participate in society, but it seems like the people who are levitating are the ones who are focusing more on the non-society aspect of being a sage, right? Whereas it seems essential to Wang Yangming that you take part in civil society. And in fact, couldn't you say that maybe some of people's later you know, dismissal of him is that, in a way, what he's saying is kind of a propping up of a certain type of bourgeois. He's not in favor of social climbing. He's not in favor of studying these texts just so you can pass exams, you know, or get in favor with the right eunuch. And in fact, he got into all kinds of trouble himself for speaking out against people in power. So I think that it's kind of important that he's unlike Schwanzer in that way, that he's encouraging people to participate in a very normal type of civic life. And I do think that he takes certain aspects of morality for granted, like obviously in, you know, in our clear character understanding, we're all understanding filial piety in the same way. So yeah, absolutely. He has a blind spot that's determined by the milieu that he's living in. But I do think that you you couldn't have what he's advocating outside of the, this act, this active component of the process of knowledge action has to be there because you have to be participating in society. And if you can't act, you can't know. And so how could you know, you know, how much action can you do just with yourself, right? You need to be yeah, engaging I- in moral action. And it's not enough to know good. There is no knowing good without doing good. And you can't do good unless you're participating in the world in some way.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It, it seems like the, the difference there is as, as a teleological view of human progress. Wang Yangming would, would clearly say, I think there's human progress. I think we as a society can be better and more of us can be better. Yeah. Whereas Zhuangzi would be like, I don't know if there's meaning to anything. There's just the thing I'm doing.
2: Yeah. And I think that for, for Wang Yongming, the, the good has to be this, this moving wheel, which does imply this progress that for Schwanzer it's, if it's a wheel at all, it's the cosmic potter's wheel, which is not going forward. It's, Whatever, it's going its own direction.
0: Totally.
1: Yeah, there, I, I do like the action as being the... Uh, I, I, really, I really thought that was kind of beautiful, that it's not enough for you to have the right thoughts. It's not enough for you. I've always been a little bit suspicious of asceticism, generally. Um, though there, I see there's a beauty to it, and there's a strange kind of compulsion in human societies to have ascetics of some kind but um, um, I kind of think of them as like pacifists, kind of like beautiful wrong people um, who I'm glad exist, you know, and and should still exist, you know.
0: Um, Somewhat somewhat Nietzsche's view, right? Mm -hmm. Was it? He had some respect for aesthetics, right? But he didn't think they were- He
2: thought they were less, he, he thought that they were more powerful than the sick people that they dominated.
0: Are you thinking more clergy or or well, no like, he
2: he talks about the ascetic class and he lumps right. the priestly the priestly order under this ascetic class right. that through their exercise of superior will can dominate and control so it's a grudging sort of respect.
0: It, <laughs> yeah and I think when we talked about Nietzsche we talked about how what we wondered what he would think of Chinese ascetics because they were less uh tied into the power structures. Yeah um often less tied into the power structures Uh, i wouldn't say the same about necessarily japanese ascetics who could be more like christian well i mean the point i'm trying to
1: say is that he's 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 of the world and he thinks that the world is where you do your work and um i've always appreciated that attitude you know
2: well i feel like he he earned it too though right i mean he grew he grew up in the world, was exiled from the world, participated in all of these different aspects of civic life, military, political, etc., and you know, exile. And so he really knew whereof he spoke in terms of having engaged in life in different positions of power and destitution and whatever.
1: Yeah. Um, and it's something I always end up talking about when I'm teaching students. In, in, If you want to think of adolescence as a microcosm of human existence it's probably a mistake but is the idea of getting out of yourself and focusing on others is is probably a a much better path in life for a lot of people who end up getting depressed or sad or angry or or bitter you know there's there's a lot of like wrong action that has to do with with navel gazing and solipsism and wang ming i think would would encourage an outward view on others view of looking at the world, acting on the world, and others in a good.
2: Well, kind way. of. He definitely advocates for active, good action, and but I think it's I think it's nuanced though because if you're not participating in the inwardness, then you're lacking the knowledge component of the knowledge action thing, and he objects pretty strenuously to those. Who of the proceeding, and I apologize because I'm worried about mispronouncing the name of his predecessor against whom he's reacting. You know, this idea that we'll we'll particularize everything and we'll sit around staring and breaking things down into their most minute portions so that we can understand each thing and through understanding each thing, gain an understanding of the whole. I feel Wang Yangming says, no, no, look within toward this you know, inner knowledge, innate knowledge, you know, and then actualize that good through action.
1: But remember, he also says that it's not knowledge until you're acting, which is so
2: Absolutely. But he definitely objects to those previous Confucius who would memorize the great learning just so they could ace their civil service exam and move on. That to him sure. isn't, knowing anything at all
0: yeah and a big criticism of him throughout his time is that he's uh he's creating a generation of shoegazing confucians right because his because you have to look inward to understand the real core truth before you can act on it and so then if you're not very good at that or you're just a bad follower of Wang, you might you might interpret that as oh well i have to you know i have to sit in oblivion for the rest of my life. And and there's a note in here talking about how he never abandons uh, silent meditation, but he does ramp it way down from his early days where he thinks it's much more important early on and then less important late, but he never abandons it. It's still part of the process. Um,
1: I thought he said that he did give it up. No, he
0: didn't, he doesn't give it up. He, he just ramps He just brings it down to a much lower level. And I don't think he could, Give it up because he does talk very clearly at one point about how important it is to be able to. uh, To, thank you, Karina. Thanks a lot. Making noises. Someone sent me an
2: email. Blame that person.
0: You should turn off your fucking phone. Blame
2: your mom, Francesca White. Send me an email. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: oh, please, <laughs> please keep that in the in the podcast. <laughs>
0: so he talks about what you can get out of uh, out of the looking inward that that you, and 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 when he says that he he's definitely saying you know that quiet sitting is a part of this process. It's certainly a part of this process. Um, sure. It's just not the thing. Whereas in, a Taoist of the time uh, uh, would uh, focus almost entirely on some form of quiet sitting whether they're doing super active uh, internal alchemy or or just doing an older form of quiet sitting um, he's saying okay no it's that's not everything you know uh, but he's also definitely the 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 bamboo tree is the clearest uh, story that that is in the most popular one about him he's he's rejecting full asceticism and full Quiet sitting as a method. But he's also rejecting this outward looking, juicy uh, school that, that Betsy were just talking about. And, and the, the moment for for our listeners, the moment where he rejects that is when he spends a week staring at a bamboo tree and, uh, <laughs> and then he gets very sick and realizes, no, you can't look outward to try to figure it all out. You have to recognize that, that everything you need to know is inside first and then function from that right see i didn't
1: i didn't get to read any Chu um but from what i gleaned from his criticisms it seemed like and, and you guys might have picked up something different but it seems like the criticism is that choosy is is like dogmatic in the way he views the world and its problems that you can categorize the world into uh i have a great christian analogy um for a time the Catholic church um, had penance and they had a penance chart that they gave to their priests. And then you went to confession and it was like, you know, it was like hitting a, uh, ticking a box. It was like, oh, well, you did, you lied three times. Well, you've got to do one station of the cross. For every three lies, it's a station of the cross. Whereas in the East, which is much more Eastern, um, there's never been anything like that. And what you ended up doing was discussing your, actions in in the context of you your relationship with god the relationship with your priest and it was never supposed to be rigid and dogmatized uh, the way the catholic church ended up doing so much to the faith Where, so i sort of see wang ming as the sort of more uh, criticizing Xi as being this sort of dogmatic um rigid thinker rather than like an outward thinker or an outward looker so i don't that was my distinction i saw but do you guys remember differently so what uh,
2: what struck me more about it was that it was this uber rational like we're going to understand all of these things and through understanding all of these things we'll then be able to understand bigger things and wang yang ming is saying like we don't have time for that we have lives to live and that's not how knowledge works and so i think it was less I mean, I could be wrong about this too, but the thing that stuck with me was less the prescriptive nature, although Wang Yangming is definitely objecting to people who just do the thing they know they're supposed to do because that's the thing they read and they don't reflect upon it. Um, But what stuck with me more was this idea of like, we don't have time to dissect things into its most minute parts and try to understand each tiny thing. We want to do the right thing now, therefore. And then he comes up with the whole process. I, I I mean, I feel like for Wang Ying Ming, it's all process. So rather than it being like you do this and then you do that and then you do this and then you do that, it's like one thing leads to another. Your nature is essentially good. Your original substance is correct, but perhaps you need to rectify your mind because selfish things are coming into it and so you rectify your mind by focusing on your good and loving thoughts and loving them and hating the bad and evil thoughts and now you've rectified your mind but now you need to become sincere and so you need to take your mind to the limit of only focusing on these good things and not focusing on these bad things and then you need to extend your knowledge to the utmost through action and you need to endeavor to do the good thing but none of this just like you do the thing because you have to do the thing
0: yeah, and you don't do the thing just because somebody says it's the right thing to do, which which was you know which became a pervasive thing. I wouldn't blame Zhu Xi necessarily for that. Um, nor do I think Wang Yangming is is saying uh, we need to move outward where Zhu Xi isn't. They're both definitely uh, focused on the world and affecting change in the world. I, I, an analogy I just thought of, which I think might be good, is that Wang Yangming is is analog and Zhu Xi is digital. And Wang Ming's big criticism of, of Ju Xi is that you can't understand the whole if you keep trying to understand each point. The, you have to just have the analog whole first. And if you try to, to function as if you know you have the whole, but you keep trying to figure out each point to figure out the whole, you're never going to get there. He, he calls it, uh, he says, Ju Xi has it flipped the process. The process really needs to be that you start with that that innate knowing. I have the quote,
1: I've just totally by chance, I think, that you're looking for. He says, what Chusi meant by the investigation of things is to investigate the principle in things to the utmost as we come in contact with them. To investigate the principles in things to the utmost as we come in contact with them means to look in each individual thing for its so-called definite principles. This means to apply one's mind to each individual thing and look for the principle in it. This is to divide the mind and principle into two, to seek for the principle in each individual thing is like looking for the principle of filial piety in parents. If the principle of filial piety is to be sought in parents, then is it actually in my own mind or is it in the person of my parents, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah, exactly, yeah. Right, because
1: that's, that's a never-ending process of division if you're Chu true see, and that's a big criticism that um people have had with um uh, logic uh overweighted logic centric western thought at times um that like you can keep rationally dividing things down into smaller and smaller pieces but you might be missing
0: something bigger yeah it reminds me of a, a i was just listening to a thing on on the supreme court case that uh established that uh, money is speech, and the uh, the folks who were were talking about it, they were saying that th- that conservatives in the quarter are often very ready to frame things in a, in a decontextualized, highly rational uh, framework of consistency in terms of the Constitution. And what that does is it allows them to appear to be very logical, but when it's decontextualized, it's like well, what does your logic mean in the context of this real big problem? Um, and, uh, you know, in that case it was like, well, you know, theoretically money is speech because uh, we could all, if we had enough money, we could all spend it to say things, right? But the, the practical reality is, is if you call money speech, then you are heavily empowering in the context of the reality of this country rich people and you are disempowering people who can't spend as much as rich people politically. So, you know, logically you could go one way and, and, but contextually uh, you'd go a different way. And I think Wang Yangming would look at this and say, well, you know, in this case, I'm not going to go with this, you know, this decontextualized logic. I'm just going to look in and say, Oh, well clearly this is the right thing to do. So I'm going to do it.
2: Yeah. I also don't think it's an accident that a lot of his epiphanies happened while he was in exile. He'd gone through some pretty rough stuff. He'd acted in a manner that he felt to be moral against an amoral power structure. And then he's cast out into the wilderness, so to speak, and I don't know, that makes sense to me.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, here's another thing that I really liked about him. when he talks about the looking inward for knowledge, I had a wonderful, and I somehow managed to find a way to bring him up every time we do one of these things. I had a wonderful Emerson moment because that is the sort of philosophical heart of self-reliance.
0: I, um, I, I thought reading this quite a bit that, that you would come with some transcendentalists. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and that's And that's kind of neat. And that's where he says that like you look inward for the knowledge that is inherent
0: to you um, and do you know do you home. know Emerson's history of reading Chinese philosophy and which stuff he read because I know he did I just don't know which stuff Betsy
1: probably knows it better than me I, don't, I know that he's
2: very familiar I, with Indian I, philosophy right he's, he's more familiar in with Indian philosophy than he is with Chinese but he definitely was exposed to Chinese but it was through this um, club that he was a member of that met and I believe that that's where you would find out your particulars would be through chasing down the records of this club because people would share things um at the club and I do think that there are probably some records of what was shared and when because I had some questions regarding um Emerson and William Blake because there's some lineup there that happens that I was curious about and Blake definitely predates Emerson by enough that it seems reasonable that Emerson would know Blake by a certain point but you can actually find out when he was exposed to Blake through the records of this club so he was exposed to Blake but he was exposed to Blake after his first big publication of essays so he was exposed to Blake after I thought he had been anyway
1: another thing might be a way to chase it down too is when wang ming got translated into english
2: right you know? and that that was with the blake too because he didn't read yeah, blake, even sure. though blake predated he didn't read him until he came over and it wasn't a translation issue with blake obviously it was a publication issue
1: yeah i mean the indian philosophy came flooding in through england a little bit sooner or easier than the chinese philosophy because the english had already been sort of there and Doing their wonderful British Empire thing of exploiting brown people um, for a while, when Emerson was a student and older.
0: What's, what's what are Emerson's Emerson's years?
1: Well, he comes of age in the twenties. Um, uh, his big his first big moment is I think eighteen thirty two when he gives the um, American Scholar. There, There's two, it's 32 and I think 33 words. 32. He gives the American scholar speech at Harvard calling for an American art an American philosophy and an American identity of individuality. And then in 33, he gives the divinity speech, which was a huge scandal. And that has a lot of his, and he was never invited back to the divinity school. <laughs> he was, um, he, I think he became a preacher for a little while and then eventually quit thereafter in the 30s. But he's he's a grown man, I guess you could say in the early I don't, 30s. I don't.
2: know that he ever was the preacher full on.
1: Yeah, you might be we right. I know he it. preached. I know that, that was his training. At Harvard, right,
2: but, but I think I, like like Kierkegaard, he sort of made it to the brink, and then was like, eh.
1: yeah. I know that he that he made a deliberate decision to not preach, but I don't I don't know what the circumstances were because it's been a long time. But anyway, I mean, the 1820s, 1830s, um, as far as what Chinese philosophy was floating around, the Divinity School at Harvard or Boston. I mean, if you were going to look anywhere in America, it would be in Boston, right?
0: Yeah, and I don't know the answer to when these these texts were translated. I know there were some that were coming in. I just don't know if his were.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's enough uh, Christian uh, philosophy, uh gnostic philosophy stuff that he would have been exposed to that's similar to that yep gnosticism has that inner light thing where you have the the knowledge inside you that you're searching for well yeah um, this that i was thinking
0: that's an interesting one because i while i was reading his his uh he's got this uh centrality of uh of humanity and i was thinking of the um uh and and the gnostic and muslim ideas about consciousness uh, and how uh, consciousness is actually the driver of existence. And I know this is a Gnostic thing and it's a, and it's a Muslim thing, um, through Avicenna or Ibn Sina. Um, but the idea is that there's like an initial, the, the cosmology here is that there's the, there's like an initial, uh, or actually this is, this is kind of, um, what is, what is the uh, origin of the cosmos? Cosmogony. Um, anyway, the, uh, the cosmogonic origin is, is like this first intellect, but then the first intellect does, it doesn't have being unless there's the second intellect to imagine the first. Uh, and there's multiple intellects, but the, the, the and I'm not describing it terribly well, but the, the gist of it is that humans and our consciousness is the, the thing that imagines the thing that made us.
2: Right, it's like the dreamer of the dream.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, I was thinking about that a lot with, with Wang Yangming, who's, who's, who's saying, hey, you know, everything that is, is only is because of humanity and our, I, I put the word consciousness in there, but I don't think it's, it's
2: a poor word. Well, he, or what, mind, right? Yeah, mind, yeah. Also, Emerson was a preacher for a little while. He was a preacher for a few years in Boston, and then oh, cool. his first wife died, and that was the end of that.
1: Yeah, that hit him pretty hard, if I
2: remember. Yeah, fun fact he dug her up after she'd been buried for about eighteen months.
0: I'm making a face.
2: Yeah.
0: He just had to see.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and what the fuck. (laughs) He he did it he did it again when his son died. He dug his son up also, so I I guess
0: did he not get enough time? with the body before the burial or something? What's the digging up? Uh, this is very weird. I get
2: it. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah.
1: there's a. I don't think I would do it, but I think there's a <laughs> sad macabre beauty to it. A very... Hey, look, he prefigures Poe. How about that?
2: Well, back process. to this quote. We're, we're wang yang minging. Let's wang yang ming already.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> this is all part of the fun, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Did you have a further quote, Mike? I can't remember.
1: Oh, oh, just um, when you know in your heart of hearts that what is true for you is true for all men. Mm. You know, that's that's the moment, um, that, and that's how he described. That's, I think, I think it's pretty close to the real quote. I mean, it's not the only thing that means something in the whole essay, but um, <clears throat> although sometimes it's funny. Uh, there's a a write-up in the Norton Anthology for Emerson where the editor who got that particular job to write the biographical information comments that Emerson was always trying to cram all of his philosophy into one essay and at times it seemed like he was trying to cram it into one sentence. Um, <laughs> um, so I, yeah, in that way there's a lot of parallel with, with Wang Ming cause he, because Wang Ming thinks this similar way that like you're not just following the truth of your heart um in some sort of modern you do you man kind of way what you're discovering is the capital t truth that only you have access to that is true for everyone you know like this is you're you're discovering absolutes inside yourself um which may be even a little step further to believe your own thought is to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men. Yeah. Um, thanks Betsy. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a very um, powerful assertion and uh, you gotta, I think I like that Wang Ming makes it Well, I like sometimes and then I get off put at other times by how he hedges his bets in a negative sense but in a positive sense keeps things sort of loose and abstract
2: well, what do you mean by hedges his bets in a negative sense
1: well there are times when I, I mentioned this to you betsy that that he's 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 stringing together a series of um abstractions in a way that he doesn't want to be nailed down and they're um
2: I disagree.
1: All right. right. Okay. Well, I couldn't find a good passage for it, but there was one where he was talking about the being and the mind and the principle and the this, and then it was just, it was sort of cycling. That's philosophy, baby. Well, Well, you know, sometimes, yeah, sometimes philosophy is too smart for its own good. Because there were there were definite times when I got a fear leads to anger anger leads to hate hate leads to suffering kind of feeling like no. yeah, you could probably put you could swap those words around. there's
0: this is an old this is an old um, uh, stylistic element of Chinese philosophy that's that's yeah. you see in a lot of places and, and and it's it's I mean it's it's ubiquitous in Chinese philosophy these these sort of uh, these lists that go from one thing to the next I was gonna say listicles. <laughs>
2: I thought it made sense, though, where he's trying to, you know, like he's, he's explaining process and he's explaining, oh my gosh, he's using whatever the translated, you know, the the word that they use in the translation is emanations, which is just a fabulous word in philosophy and one that I associate most often with Plotinus, you know, and this idea of emanations. Oh, what a beautiful thing but when you're trying to simultaneously have things emanating from things and a process where you know it's it's not you know one thing makes all things true but it needs the other thing like you know it's going to be a little weird
1: yeah yeah well anyway on the more positive end (laughs) i I know it's going to be a little weird you know um on the more positive end, there were times when I thought that he was doing a very good job of keeping things flexible and and, and abstract enough that it wasn't going to get too seed, I guess. I'm sorry, you're making a face. What did I do? No,
2: with? it's one of these like doing a good job. I feel like whenever you move outside of the rationalist paradigm, there's this whole like, just explain the thing you're trying to say, (laughs) you know? Like you can't explain the thing you're trying to say if the thing you're trying to say is, don't prescriptively explain the thing you're trying to say. I think he does a really good job when he talks about how we can't look at the leaves to understand the root, you know? Like he gives us some pretty clear things that explain why you can't explain it in a normal way
1: Right. I was saying why I like that sometimes. There were other times when that's not what he was doing. I, and I can't find the damn quote now. now I right can
2: find the quote because it's about principle. And I think I know the one that annoyed you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I, I really like his, uh, his individual take on all this. That, that Mikey was saying that, that there is a capital T truth, but it is not, or, or capital T the truth, right? But it is not, um, it is not a singular truth. Truth for everyone, but it's also on the other end of the spectrum not like you do you as Betsy was saying Um, There is an individuality to discovering how you function within the natural That is uh, that I that I liked about this text that 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 each person has to Search inwardly find the natural and then function through it And 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 as you said you don't you aren't really doing anything until you're acting in the knowledge and but but how you act in the knowledge is different than how i act in the knowledge right and and we each have our own fate which is not a a, it's not a prescriptive fate it's it's uh it's what happens when you're acting in the natural and the right which is
1: which is also interesting because don't confucius sort of go in for destiny and fate in a sense
0: no not really um this i think this is the word ming um and for the most part, when Chinese philosophy in the Confucian tradition, when they're talking about fate, they're talking about uh, the, the the destiny you create through your actions. The you know the non-prescriptive fate. They may say there's a right result, but they don't say it's necessarily prescribed. Okay. There Is can also remember, be a wrong result.
1: I remember in the Moist section, uh, introduction of by the by the editor again, there was commentary that the Moist's distinctly didn't believe in destiny where the confucius did but that was 1700 years before this so i don't know
0: but yeah i'm not well, sure
1: either before we chase that one down mm-hmm. i found a perfectly good quote serviceable that that it's it's just irritating i wouldn't say that i don't understand well i don't know i'm going to read it out loud and see if i do understand it
0: what so page you page,
1: on? 681 around the middle of the page um and and it's very much related to the Chu C thing, I think. But the substance of the mind is nature, and nature is identical with principle. Consequently, there is the mind of filial piety towards parents. There is the principle of filial piety. If there is no mind of filial piety, piety, there will be no principle of filial piety, as there is the mind of loyalty towards the ruler, and there is the principle of loyalty. If there is no mind of loyalty, there will be no principle of loyalty. Are principles external to the mind? Hu Xian said man's object of learning is simply mind and principles. Although the mind is the master of the body actually it controls all principles in the world. And although principles are distributed through the 10,000 things, actually they are not outside one's mind. These are about the two aspects of concentration and diversification. See to me, like you get into this and it goes on for another couple of sentences where there's just, I get it. He's criticizing this though,
0: Micah. He's criticizing this in this, in this section. The thing uh, you don't like actually Wang Yangming is criticizing. It's oh. Well, then that's something <laughs> So he says in that next sentence that you stopped in, these are but the two aspects of concentration and diversification. But the way Can you Dude, please I, stop? I turn it off. I don't know.
2: Tell why tell I had your it. tell certain people to stop emailing her. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, okay, so sorry. Uh, the way Zhu Xi has put it has inevitably opened the way to the defect among scholars of regarding the mind and principle as two separate things. This is the reason why later generations have the trouble of only seeking their original minds and consequently neglecting the principles of things. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think well, again, you don't it, like keep, is Zhu Xi.
1: <laughs> keep, keep going, though. Okay, hold on. It's identical to this principle, the idea that if one seeks the principles of things outside the mind, there will be no points at right. which the mind is close but to the But you answer.
2: recognize that what he's upset with is the particularizing.
1: Yes, I, I do.
2: So that's all that he I means. I don't think he's saying, it's all in your mind, man. I think he's saying, like, this isn't particular <laughs> to your mom or that cat or whatever. It's in your <laughs> mind. You understand the principle in your mind. It's not about...
1: Okay. any one and person then, and, and then a couple of sentences down its attainment of proper righteousness and then its orderliness is called principle and then humanity or righteousness outside the mind there's a lot hold of on, words hold on
2: well, hold down and, and <laughs> where are you? wait? hold on 682
1: i guess 682 yeah right at the top
2: of the page okay the, righteous- the mind is one oh yeah look i drew a little diagram here Check it out. Mind is on top, and then below it is humanity, righteousness, and principle. These are arrows because it's a process. <laughs> oh, I get it, Betsy. I'm not saying I don't get it. I'm sorry, that wasn't snotty I'm toward saying...
1: you. <laughs> no, of course not. What I'm saying is that you can just switch that diagram up any way you like. You can start shifting things around and putting arrows in different directions. And you're making as strong a point, right. but you're saying something different. No, because and it's all one, man. But you're not saying anything contradictory to the original point, so, but it's not. It's, it's specifically in an order on purpose. He's not he's not putting it in any order. He could just say like, or any order, but he
2: doesn't well, because... Right. So righteousness only occurs. So everything is one, period, full stop. Righteousness only occurs if the process happens in a particular order.
1: Sure, and an order that is essentially overture.
2: No, it's principle.
1: <laughs> it's only principle because humanity is loyalty, is piety, is principle.
2: No, because
1: it's mind. <laughs> I'm sorry, because it's mind. Anyway. That's what I think his but no, philosophy I is. But no, I think, no, I
2: think that, I think that this makes, but me he's trying, uh, no, I, sure. I think no. that, right. But I think that, I think that all of this is to really emphasize his idea of movement within process, as opposed to a sort of static thing, right? Like we need to do all of this stuff all the time in our mind. And then do the do the right thing, the righteousness thing, because we've deliberated in these ways. I'm not sure that's what he's saying in that in that
0: particular uh, So passage. I've been rereading it and I'm trying to figure out is he could he be saying could the important part about this this paragraph on top of six eighty-two, the mind is one, that is all. Let's leave that there. And then this next several sentences are could they be. Another description of the ways in which Juicy's followers get lost.
2: Yeah, because he's talking about the separation of things, right? And that's the Juicy thing, is he sees it, right?
0: Right. So if you get caught up in commiseration, you get humanity. Uh, you try to attain what's proper. It's called righteousness. He's saying it's called righteousness, but I'm not se- sure he's necessarily saying it is righteousness. Um, and then in terms of orderliness, it is called principle. He seems, I, I, you could interpret this as him criticizing those things, because then he says knowledge and active action have been separated because people seek principles outside the mind. And the doctrine of unity of knowledge and action of the Confucian school means seeking principles in the mind. Why do you doubt it? So is he not saying like, stop with these listicles and just, you know, get to the mind. You know what's right. Stop pretending that, 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 if, that if you've broken down something and ordered it, it is somehow principle. Because you could be wrong you could have ordered something wrongly and it's unprincipled
1: i think it was clear before that that's something like what he was saying i don't yep. know if it's clear at the end of the paragraph i, I, don't, know either. I, I don't know it's possible it's possible
0: that just struck me while but i was rereading he, i think
1: the he's 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 stronger when he keeps his paradoxical claims a little simpler um when he's when he's when when they challenge him about you said there's no good and evil aren't you a buddhist or i don't know if they put it that way and he explains that good and evil are the same in the in the beginning until will is acted upon them that section is kind of beautiful and it it makes a little it's it's irrational so i don't want to say it makes sense but it's um the poetry makes more sense to me
0: yeah, and he has, he has separated uh, what he calls the true good, which is the natural, from the moral good and evil. He does make a clear yeah. philosophical distinction between those two.
1: But then to say that they're the same, to say that good, moral, morality of good and morality of evil are the same, and that when will is acted upon them, they manifest into good or evil depending on action, was, which also, if you think about the rest of what he's talking about, this is also so interesting, is that action is how knowledge is actualized and completed right so it's not just action is not just a completion of knowledge or an attainment of true knowledge after contemplation but it's also an actualization of moral uh of morality be it good or evil so there's a true evil to be that you can
0: know but the evil is only the thing which goes against the, the the natural.
1: Yeah, the natural good.
0: Yeah, but I don't think this is like a platonic form of the good. That's why I, I'm not using the word good the way he used the word good for the natural. The natural is just the like, absolutely the thing that's supposed to happen. And he's saying that that's much more important than moral good and evil.
2: Well, cause there's that whole passage, right? Where he's saying that when things are as they should be, they're in balance and there is no good and there is no ge- evil. Not that there's like perfect good, but that there's no good, there's no evil. There's just a balance.
0: Right. So That, that doesn't mean moral relativism though.
2: Sorry. Yeah, I don't think he's, he means that there's like five goods and five evils and it's in balance.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> no. He says here, I have it on page 684, which I'm shocked that I've been able to find passages. I want to find um, scrolling through a 700, 800 page PDF, but somehow I've gotten lucky. I asked, and that's one of the students, Sir, you once said that good and evil are one thing, but good and evil are opposed to each other like ice and burning coals. How can they be said to be only one? The teacher said, the highest good is the original substance of the mind. When one deviates a little from this, subs- uh, this original substance, there is evil. It is not that there is a good and there is also an evil to oppose it. Therefore, good and evil are one thing. Having heard our teacher's explanation, I know that we can no longer doubt Master Ching Ho's saying, man's nature is of course good, but it cannot be said that evil is not our nature. And good and evil in the world are both the principle of nature what is called evil is not originally evil it becomes evil only because of deviation from the mean
2: right but the deviation is selfishness yeah
0: yes i think selfishness which drives us not to know ourselves right when you know yourself and you know you know the innate knowing and and, and then act with that then you do good by definition and and again i think that's a separate good than, than a, than a classic good and evil, moral good and evil.
2: Yeah. Maybe it's more like as things should be than good.
0: So this is normally where an ad would go, but we don't have any money or make any money from this podcast. So I figured I'd use this space to uh, give a shameless plug for my other podcast in which you can hear uh, my brother and I and, and a couple of friends argue uh it's called 50,000 emails later and it's about uh, 25 years in the making uh involves four old friends uh, arguing with each other about politics society and whatever we feel like talking about for the moment uh enjoy that one it's also on buzzsprout sprout um and uh apple and spotify and all those things uh, anyway let's get back um so i was thinking today about like about how Dangerous an idea of the natural order could be, uh, because I was listening to something about white nationalists uh, and and how the the alternative view to the uh, to the liberal uh, worldview is is that the you know open, diverse, free society has taken us away from the natural order, which is you know the fascist idea of the natural where where there's a certain kind of uh, natural order where certain kind of powerful people dominate the less powerful. Um, Blood
1: and soil, blood and soil.
0: But it made me think while reading Wang Yangming how dangerous an idea of the natural could be if it's very strict. Uh, And in China, you do have a sense that there is a natural order in terms of gender.
2: Right, but that's where I thought it was interesting that Wang Yangming supposedly thought that Women did have the capacity to be spiritually developed, and that therefore, yeah,
0: certainly if, Li Ju, as who you linked yeah. and talked about earlier, went with that, and that's really cool. I want to I want to learn more about that because I don't know much about it, and and I'm really interested in 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 how uh, women are per, are are talked about and perceived by Confucians, especially in the Ming as women's uh, women's. Rights and women's uh, putative usefulness in society beyond the household was on the decline, uh, and uh, women had been in a. Well, by the time Wang Yangming comes along, women had been in a two three hundred year decline in terms of, of rights across the board, um, from from their sort of apex of, of of power in the Northern Song Dynasty in the in the eleventh century to to Wang Yao Ming's time. Um, so it's, uh, I'm interested to learn more about that. It's cool, I'm glad you brought him up. I'm gonna spend some time looking into Li Ji. Li yeah,
2: Zhe. I found him to be an interesting figure.
0: Yeah, the, the, there's a similar decline in
1: the treatment of women that starts around 1600 in the West. That is, as scientific thinking and political rights become something that the West is trying to adopt, the condition of women Compared to say, like the Middle Ages, actually declines until like in the nineteenth century, women are essentially just like kept children. Yeah. in the in the wealthy countries. Um, I think
0: Japan is the worst example of it because women had so much power in Japan up until the ninth century. Yeah, that women were you know women were essentially that the power structure was largely flipped early on in Japan and and. Uh, with women in in the key positions of power and and uxoro local marriage and women having total control over the family including businesses and things like that men were like these these tools to to use for for warfare you know kind of like the the men in um in princess mononoke
1: wow. that's
0: a that's a really great uh, vision of of actually how it's it's very possible japanese society was in say the you know third through 10th centuries more so than than but once once confucian and buddhism comes in confucianism and buddhism come into japan in the 8th century it starts to shift and and women become totally infantilized and 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 stripped of all power by by the you know by meiji mm. and it's much it's even more stark than the chinese example or the european example
1: Wow, and then they finally got it back when we wrote their constitution.
0: Yeah, but that they didn't. <laughs> women, women didn't really come into any power until very recently, and still, it's pretty. It's, yeah, I'm sure it's, it's not it's, great. It's pretty measured, I but but it's really, pretty- it's it's if you look at the old histories, it's amazing. The early histories of Japan, like they're the 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 way the stories go, it's always like some dude tries to take over or e- exert some kind of agency and change. And they have to go back to a woman to fix it. Like the Empress has to come in or a new woman has to take over and, and restore balance because she's the Empress. And, and that's like, it's a trope early on. Oh, wow. And, and you see that slowly just disappear from the narratives of Ch- a Japanese elite society where women are just relegated to sexual, uh, uh, Satisfaction of men and and um, you know sort of outlet for men men's stuff and and there's, there's some interesting stuff with women later but they really become subordinated no. from a position of total power.
1: Well, I know that's what I learned watching. You only live twice. In Japan, men always
0: come
1: first. Do you remember that? No. <laughs> you don't remember you? It's one of the worst movies. Oh my god, it's terrible. Of um, Sean Connery as James Bond becomes Japanese. They actually give him like surgical eye slants so that he looks Japanese because he's he's thought to be dead and he joins the Japanese secret service. Yeah, it's
0: it's Oh awful. Jesus, that sounds absolutely horrifying.
2: i thought that his whole knowledge action synthesis was a beautiful way of conceptualizing and i liked that he didn't he put parameters on the innate knowledge you know the the mind still needs to be rectified there's still a good and bad standard that needs to be employed when assessing one's thoughts and thence moving into action. But I think that the dynamism of that process, the lack of stagnation, avoids a lot of what Kierkegaard was talking about when he was talking about, you know, living in an age of endless reflection, no action, and I feel like that inwardness versus reflection thing was also born out a bit in this. You know, like this, to be inward isn't necessarily to be navel gazing; it's to not be endlessly outward. So I feel like Wang Yangming's way of looking at things is a potentially very fruitful way of living
0: yeah i think i think that's true and i think he voids a a few traps that i've always seen with buddhism and i don't want to mischaracterize buddhism or paint it with a single brush here but but at least the thing he's avoiding is is uh the idea that you become enlightened and then you're good and you can just function like he's he's not saying that he's saying that this process of trying to unite uh, of of trying to Realize that knowledge and action are united and can only be united, uh, united in their original union because there is no separation. It's not really union. You realize that it it is all one thing, with your, with your looking inward and and uh, and finding of innate knowing, and you have to keep doing that. You have to. It's a process that you never stop doing. It's not a. It's not a door. It's a. It's like a. You know. but It's a road. It's a road. It's a path. Maybe he used the word, he does use the yep. word Dao in there. Once yeah. there, uh, the translator, Wang Sichan, translated as Wei, but capital W Wei.
2: But something interesting that you'll find in the person who I put in the chat, say the name Luke so I don't. Li, Li Zhe. Zhe. Something that Li Zhe mentions that perhaps he gets from Wang Yangming, I don't know. Um, is that there's a there's an ability to engage with the Confucius teachings in a way that allows you to sort of engage with the good but not get tied down by all of the minutiae where you can deviate without it being a deviation from the sort of baseline oneness and goodness that one could find in the general teachings. And so Dijer talks about not being hung up on what happens to his body when he dies, which is a very un way to be, where he's like, if I die by the side of the road, that's okay. Leave me by the side of the road. It's all right. And then ultimately, when he takes his life, he's not interested in really what's going to happen to his body. But it's not ignoring these really important civic and social tenets, you know, filial piety and good goodness toward one's neighbor and things like this. It's just an ability to disengage with these small sort of hang-ups of the things that aren't intimately related with your knowledge action process but that are these more extraneous ritual things.
0: Yeah. There's a criticism yeah. in there of Buddhism in that, that he says they can't actually let go of a certain yeah. Of attachment. Yeah. Which I think is right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I do too. Buddhism is flawed, <laughs> but um, I think he, I agree with you totally Betsy on what you're saying. Um, I wonder how, trapped in the filial piety corner we might get with him and i can actually and i I don't know if this is true because i didn't i don't think i'm a smart enough or in-depth enough reader but there's maybe a um a possibility that he was trying to sort of extricate confucian thought from the limitations of it one of the things i've never i don't find i don't like about confucianism as i've said before is this filial piety thing but in in not because you're not supposed to love your parents but because it becomes so rigid and so much about you doing your role as the ex child of your of your family and falling into line and paying respect and doing what you're told and in its extreme form as lucas have described it to me you know, basically becoming a kind of slave to your ancestors' spirits. um, And that there's a different form that you've also explained to me where you're sort of like just keeping them happy so you can go about your business. And I see this as a kind of trying to duke around it a little bit and, and loosen it up and allow for, you know, I wonder what he would say. I wonder how, you know, some member of a family comes up in the world and decides not to follow the family business or not to do what is expected of them by the parents and to follow their own knowledge, action, truth that's inside them. You know, I think he's maybe, maybe doing an okay job of, of, of setting up a framework for that person.
2: He addresses it. He, I think he addresses it a little bit through the whole generalities thing where it's not like you know you need to put a blanket on your parent in the winter because you're supposed to put a blanket in you know on your parent in the winter but more like you don't want your parent to be cold you know and and also by extrapolating that in the general toward the way we ought to behave toward everyone you know it's not this like you do the thing because you have to or you do the thing because that's what your particular parent Jim Franklin wants you to do but it's this empathetic good response that you can then project outward toward your treatment of not just your parents but everyone
0: yeah yeah there's 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 definitely a, a an idea i think in here that that society can be better and we should believe in that better society. And there's a there's a recipe for it, which is each of us doing what Wang Yangming says we all should do. And if we do that, then we will create this progressive, wonderful society. So he if he's right about that, then this is a very attractive philosophy, I think. I think if the Buddhists are right and or or if maybe if some of the Taoists who are more and are right, then maybe that's all bullshit and and it, there is no progressive society, and it's all just these myths we tell ourselves. But, but to him, he believes in, in a good society, a better society, uh, and he believes in society. And ultimately, I think that's where the Confucian filial piety has some strength, whether we like it or not. It has a lot of strength in constructing a stable society.
2: Yeah, I also and hmm. I think. Sorry, go on.
0: I was just going to say, you know, I've talked to Mike, I've talked to you and I think on this about how um, a definition of society is important in a sense, uh, a particular society, and that can lead to like um, uh, the importance of something like patriotism. If it's not toxic patriotism, if it's sort of like we we believe in a vision for this country that is good. And then we reproduce that vision in an ongoing way. Well, that's very... Confucian filial piety in a sense. That you're, you're believing in the vision for society through your family being a part of it, and you're acculturating yourself to that part of it and moving ahead with it uh, as part of it to keep the, this great society moving and in, in that great direction.
1: Yes, I agree. And I think that Wang Ming is trying to create enough flexibility with his philosophy that you can think of it that way, whereas in a stricter Confucianism, you definitely can't. In the kind of Confucianism, I no doubt they're still teaching right now in China, which is all about stability and not about, as far as I can tell, not about progress. Then you know you don't, um, because you don't want to create that kind of flexibility, you know, in, in people. You don't want people to believe that um, that loving your parents and doing what they're doing what they say are different things you know you want them to believe that those are the same things because there is there is you want a stable society too but you want a dynamic society which is in and of itself a kind of instability um and uh, isn't that part of china's like strange beauty is these long are, are these long periods of stability um punctuated by upheaval and then extraordinary development short periods of time and then long periods of stability you know um that's a i always think of china i think of stability i think of like a stable society that that is uh, that values it's it's um it's kind of uh, cyclical unchangingness even if it's changing i don't know if that's accurate or not but
0: yeah, yeah, and I, I think if as long as we don't get uh, hung up on the old myth that that there was stagnation at any given period, um, I think that's right. Because um, stagnation is, is is usually the 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 interpretation of that stability was that it was somehow stagnant. And I think you're right to say that even if it seems to be uh, unchanging, it is changing. Um, but the stability yeah. is right. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Charlie, Declines here and there too, and crashes and rises. So, I'll, I'll, but I wouldn't consider Chinese stability as stagnation. Certainly, is that 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 must be like an older uh,
0: historical trope? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Only dispensed with in the last thirty years, yeah. yeah. Euro American scholarship, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Um, but I, I mean, it's a, it's a trope that that comes out of. Uh, Hegel and Marx also, in, in their Asiatic mode of production ideas, and um, uh, Marx had that one, but 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 those two were con- contributed substantially to the idea that, that there are these like um, monolithic dictatorial states that are that are you know unchanging and stable and big and powerful, and then there's dynamic small European states um, it, that became very. Popular, obviously, with nationalism in the 19th century. Right.
1: Thanks, Marx. <laughs> every, every, every dark little corner of the room, I gotta look at your dumb face. <sighs> you and your beard.
2: All I was thinking of earlier regarding the filial piety thing was that Wang Yangming talks so often about selfishness and our own desires for personal advancement coming in and sort of skewing and ruining our innate knowledge and contaminating our future actions and thus rendering us insincere and not in alignment with the good or whatever the better word is for the good in that construct and regarding the filial piety, I think he'd been in exile and was coming out of exile and was going to go into a pretty advantageous appointment when his father died. And he then excused himself from civic life for three years to mourn right, him. Right, which
0: was the standard, and that was that, the for elite society, right, yeah. Right,
2: which was the standard. And I think that there's something kind of interesting about a societal decision to allow people to not engage in some kind of like hyperactive advancement ambition practice t- to mourn your parent yeah this I don't is know. something i've been like...
0: attracted to as a societal element for a long time i because I, I think it's really yeah uh it's much more um balanced in in a way uh and it's not allow i think that's what's important you use the word allow it's it's not allow it's it's expect okay. and understand that the right thing to do is to remove.
2: So more like this is this is what you ought to, this is the best practice. This yeah, and is it wasn't
0: always with the death of a parent, but it absolutely was expected with the death of a parent that you would remove yourself from public service because you can't function properly under those under those conditions. And but when you move away from the death of a parent, you have, well you can't function properly if you work for too long at a given at, at a at a clip. And so it was expected that if you had a, 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 an appointment that you would work it for three years and then you'd take some time off before your next appointment. Because you can't function at your highest level without that self-cultivation time.
1: God, I love that. Let's do that.
0: Yeah, I think it's amazing. I, I, it's very much, it's totally like the absolute polar opposite of the Protestant work ethic, right? It's, it's like...
2: Yeah, right. The, the unflagging. Yeah, you well, grind indeed. yourself
0: into dirt. <laughs> suffering is 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 God's love, right? It's, it's like how you feel. Oh. God's love.
2: Well, <laughs> I do, I do think that Wang Yangming, totally. I do think that Wang <laughs> Yangming um, credits suffering. Yeah. Then, I mean, that's different. That it that's different than endless right, yeah. suffering, right? Or I'm like literally like suffering. But he losing definitely losing the skin on your
0: fingers because you're working the fields too hard
2: right but i think the quote is there's some quote in here about how he credits his greatest epiphanies to oh yeah yeah
0: no suffering. i'm I'm more speaking about the the like the protestant idea that that you know we must just grind everything out to the glory of god to, to yeah. death
1: i don't really think that that's a fair characterization of it but I, I it is there is a certain amount of um sloth is definitely the enemy and you know, you're supposed to really work your butt off. Um, yeah.
2: Right. But but to, but to quote Yang, Wang Yangming in another way, where he says that you should always be doing something, which I also totally get down with, because the always doing something doesn't necessarily mean always be doing mm-hmm. the same thing, right? Or always be doing the thing that it is that you set out to do the first time you set out to yeah. do the thing. So I don't think that he's into sloth either, but he's he's into doing the right, you know, doing what needs yeah, to be done yeah. that at the at the time, but not in this prescriptive like it's Tuesday. Self cultivation
0: being any number of things. Yeah. So. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And but what the Chinese would call self cultivation and doing the right thing by your parents when they die or whatever would be called sloth <laughs> by by a number of. You know, by a good end. percentage of yeah. the Euro American Yeah, population. would not
2: fly yeah. And, and today. Yeah,
0: Especially in America, where we work more hours than anyone else in the world, right? Yeah, really. Right. Well, actually, no, I think, <laughs> oddly enough, uh, East Asia, dominated by Confucius, is, is uh, <laughs> I think, do they work more hours than we do, or do we? I don't know. Really, I don't know the answer. But then there's also the question of taking time off. What do you do when you take time off? They,
1: they do have anti suicide nets, though, in their
0: workers' buildings. Oh, the Japanese yeah. stories are harrowing. Of of workers, oh, no, this is people working oh, themselves to death. Dead. Yeah, yeah, working. Thinking you know, about the Chinese
1: factories, ninety hours
0: their, straight or something.
1: The Chinese factories
0: that have these
1: these nets strung over the courtyards because they, they have so many suicides. These are like factory workers who live and work at the factory, so they just put nets there to catch them. Which That's is funny. great. It's like, what what are you doing with the kids today? I just throw them in the net. It'll be fine. <laughs>
0: Uh, they have not embraced wang yang ming these days unfortunately
1: it's not it's not something a totalitarian regime is really going to get down with
0: no. You know? no and that's one wonderful thing again wonderful thing about this period in ming chinese history and ming ming china has some some real warts you know like uh, uh, foot binding <laughs> but um, yeah it it was it was incepted during the ming and and ramped up and um, and again the the decline of women's rights but there is culturally, there's some really beautiful, amazing stuff in the in the art and poetry and uh, in the late Ming and this time. And a lot of it is really right in with the Wang Yang Ming idea that you search inside and then express. And the expressions that come out of it are some of, like some of my favorite art is from this, uh, from a little bit after this, which really, as he's really popular, um, the art that's coming out of like the 16th, uh, the mid 17th century. Um, and uh, and it survives into like my favorite Chinese artist Bada Shanren. His stuff comes comes out of this this kind of uh, you know look inside and then express outward, and and you'll express you know something that's more true than than if you're trying to investigate things uh, incessantly. But it it comes out of a school that starts before Wang Yangming, and then really after Wang Yangming I think comes into its full expression, which is this, it, 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 it's very much like abstract expressionism in terms of how it's produced. This sort of like, you just feel the truth of whatever the art is, and then you express quickly, relatively <laughs> quickly, and there it is, it, it comes out. Yeah. And I think Bada Shanren does it so fucking brilliantly.
1: Right, well, I mean, to, to, to think about the expressing of one's inner self, um i I celebrate myself and sing myself and assume you shall assume um whitman was reading emerson he adored emerson and that was and he listened and he heard that and he said that's what we get from it. we get leaves of grass
2: it's
0: cool i i first learned about this kind of chinese art Oh, I, I don't know how long ago, I guess it was like 15 years ago, but I, I, I remember thinking like, fuck, these guys were 200 years ahead of abstract expressionism and they got it really right.
2: Yeah, really. So
1: much more right than abstract expressionism.
0: So right. Yeah, I was going to say like, it's like better. I think it is right so, right? yeah, I think it's so much right, more, more That's true like and it and it can be extremely so abstract. Right and, and
1: it seems more like, in, like post-impressionism to me.
0: Oh yeah, totally. Uh, the like Van Gogh is the maybe pretty close, right? Yeah.
1: Probably.
2: I believe it. I believe Van it said Goh. Van Gogh. <gasps> <laughs> Van Gogh.
1: Uh, or like wait, wait.
2: But Van Gogh loved the Chinese. He did. Art. He was
0: a huge fan of Chinese and Japanese art, um, which was, and and that's uh, what's he end of the nineteenth century. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: So he's absorbing. Yes. Uh, he's absorbing Chinese art from this period which it would have been happened 100 to 200 years before but but he would have he would have been exposed to it
2: right Uh.
0: and i was again like we we were taught when like learning art history it was so european centric that i never thought somebody else could think of like abstract art you know
1: yeah but we were also taught weird um I, i think actually people's view of art still Suffers from this, that I think there's a tendency because the Renaissance happened the way it happened, mm-hmm. and because painting develops the way it developed. I think people tend to think of it in um, teleological terms.
0: Yeah, but, but I think a lot of our education was teleological, which I have I've sort of had to undo. You know, like the the like religion that the history of religion is was taught teleologically, was and it? still is yeah that monotheism is an advancement
1: oh yeah i guess i was taught that
2: yeah
0: absolutely yeah yeah,
1: yeah. i mean not not in college it's taught that
0: way yeah yeah in high school which i now find to be like this strange absurdity that they taught that we were taught
1: yeah
0: um but a lot of that comes from sort of like socrates criticizing uh um polytheism right
1: well, I mean, there's a lot of like circumstantial evidence too. You know, um, Hinduism appears to be polytheistic, and then eventually it develops the idea of the single godhead, which makes it more monotheistic. And you know. but,
0: but even that is, is is not really. I mean, hin, Hinduism's real core is 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 sort of a Manichaean dualism, though. So it's with, with a monism at its core from the beginning. And I think what you're talking about is a is sort of a development that was read onto it post imperialism.
1: Yeah, I guess if you think that dualism isn't also a kind of monotheism, which I think it is.
0: Well, it's, uh, but so would early Vedic stuff that becomes monism becomes uh, Hinduism is uh, is a Manichaean dualism under an umbrella of a monism. So it was always there, is my point, as, as a monism. Um, not a monotheism, but a monism. Um, and, uh, e, you know, but it's such a diverse practice that it was, it was talked about as a polytheism, and it sort of is, but like, but the idea that one is more advanced than the other is really where I've, I've you know, I know I learned that and was taught that, but I've, I've rejected. Because it seems just to be a very arbitrary.
1: I have to think about it. I I definitely consider, um, like even within monotheism, I think I consider different forms of religion to be more suitable to um, mature enlightened minds than others, but I don't think it aligns with the theology we were taught.
0: Yeah, and I don't know if it necessarily aligns with any idea of a particular number of gods or single god or whatever. I I don't know. Uh, I think
1: if you if you actually believe in like a variety of gods, I, I can sense it that it would be an, an uh, immature and or unenlightened way of viewing hmm. God. Um,
0: yeah, maybe that that uh, that I don't know. Maybe that the best way to look at any in a religious well I don't know if it's really any sort of ontological view has to come up with some sort of monistic core if if it's better, but I don't I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, don't know. On that. I mean philosophically I think I I tend to I tend to be drawn towards the monistic ideas philosophically. Wang yeah. Yang Wang Yangming fits that, right? Like he's very insistent yeah. that all is one and and the mind is all. And I should also say, we didn't, I didn't mention before that an important element of, of all Neo-Confucianism is that it's a synthesis philosophy of Buddhism, Taoism and, and Confucianism from before. Ultimately, um, Zhu Xi, Wang Yangming, all of them, they all are part of this synthesis, uh, this grand synthesis that Neo-Confucianists who came just before Ju Xi, were exploring guys uh, named Zhou Dunyi uh, and the Cheng brothers, Cheng Hao and Cheng Yi. Um, they came up with these ideas of the one being really important. and and So Wang Yangming in some ways is like jumping over Zhu Xi to get to Zhou Dunyi and the Cheng brothers. And he mentions the Cheng brothers and Zhou Dunyi positively in this text um, because he's saying, oh yeah, those guys, they were doing it right, but Zhu Xi kind of took us a little bit too, in, in too much of an atomized direction. So, but it's important to know that like, this isn't a strictly Confucian school that they're, when they accuse Wang Yangming of being too Buddhist, they're not saying don't be Buddhist at all, or too Taoist. They're not saying don't be Taoist at all. They're saying like, you just went too far.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I guess, um, I wonder how much that is cultural. sit down and think about it i mean there also is a certain evidence to suggest that tribal groups which all have serious areas of overlap in their religious practices related to um sort of spirits and entities of and uh and sort of weather and food based mythologies you know like there seems to be a a a very loose and i think you'd have to I don't know. I'd have to really think about it, but there there seems to be just very quickly thinking about it like a a progression from maybe not a progression in terms of improvement, but of course I do think it's probably an improvement from from tribal to to modern life in terms of like what religions are going to serve a community community's needs.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the Chinese example kind of blows things up because, you know, in, in most Chinese households, you have a kitchen god, you have a hearth god, you have a town god, you have a regional god, you have, um, uh, you know, uh, potentially somewhat deified ancestors, um, you have a real multiplicitous view of, of, the, uh, of the world beyond phenomena and um you know and and it's very difficult to argue that china didn't have a very progressive building ever increasingly complex society for the last of course
1: not right you can see those those gods are kind of more like spirit entities like
0: japanese commies yeah japan has the kami. yeah yeah so it's just hard for me to to say that that has has anything to do with It's hard for me to say that any of these structures are anything but incidental to the things we've talked about as a progressive society that's growing. And yet what we grew up learning was that like if you want your society to to become more advanced, you move to monism. Or monotheism, really, is what we learned. Or rather, that's what happened and so that's the reality, that that monotheism is an advancement along with you know, uh, uh, better guns and better ships and better writing and, uh, you know what I mean? The printing press. Yeah. Um, so I, I, that's that's the kind of thing I projected. I just don't see it as as.
1: No, no, yeah, I mean, that's that's, that's relevant. pretty simple. Um,
0: yeah, and, and
1: I can definitely agree that that's not the case. But mm. to say that, like, different forms of human organi- self-organization require different religious occupations i don't think is necessarily wrong mm-hmm. it would just have to be very um it would be difficult to to fully quantify you'd have to really look at it in its yeah. details but maybe not impossible
0: well you know? i think i don't know i think i think it's all really interesting to think about i've spent so much time thinking about religion and religion in societies and i think like I wish I'd known about pluralistic religious societies growing up. I really wish I did. You grew up in one. Uh, you, did I really? Yeah, we did. I mean, most, <laughs> almost everybody we knew was either uh, was was either Christian or Jewish, and we we knew or few, an atheist. We knew very few atheists. There was one in your class <laughs> in elementary school, right?
1: We were us in our in our family.
0: Yeah, but we went to church. We grew up in church. You know, we grew up Christian, and we were kind of the last generation <laughs> in many ways to to for most of us to grow up religious, right? Um, but my point is, like, a society in which in which the dominant religions aren't exclusive is really what I'm talking about. Like, I wish I'd known about that because it's fascinating, and I didn't think it existed. I thought everybody who was religious believed that their religion was the only thing really didn't you i mean did you meet a religious person who didn't think that their religion was the one thing
1: well i mean yeah i guess i mean who we were raised (laughs) people people believed their religion was their thing
0: yeah but they also believed it was the true thing and that's not necessarily the reality in that's not the reality in china by and large for most of chinese history Religion was much more flexible, and and an individual was could be pluralistic. That's I think it connects with Wang Yangming and the Neo Confucians importantly, because after a certain point, uh, you know, you as a as an individual in China, you very easily were were a Buddhist on Tuesday and a Taoist on Wednesday, and and you know. Did ancestral stuff on Thursday and prayed to the town god on Friday. And that was none of that was, uh, none of that was in intention.
1: I, I don't, I don't understand how, how, how you could be, how you could be a Buddhist on Monday and, and anything but a Buddhist on Tuesday
0: that's what i'm saying it's 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 outside of our understanding because we grew up where in, in, in a world in which a jew couldn't be a christian
1: no but it's not it's not just outside it's like becoming a different person i mean if no, you do
0: you have to understand this,
1: if you if you believe the, if you believe that reality is an illusion on monday you can't turn around and then believe that it's not on tuesday oh, but you're is taking your a very singular
0: view of buddhism i'm talking more well, I'm about just
1: take it's just a fucking example I no mean...
0: no but the, but the important example is that is that chinese people compartmentalize certain elements of their lives to be the province of buddhists and other elements to be the province of Taoists, and other elements to be the province of local gods or or ancestors or the or the state cult
1: well, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that we grew up in that culture too, since the
0: '60s. Uh, ever increasing amount.
1: Yeah, I think there. I have met lots of people, at, certainly in high school, who were who were cafeteria tray religioning themselves. There yeah, were also some
0: Christians up. who did Christmas and Hanukkah.
1: Jew right? Christians? Did you? Yeah, we were, we were drew Jew Christians. It's very you know new. I mean?
0: It's very new here, and it's it's a uh, thousand years old in China. Uh, the, the, what I think is great about it is that is that rejecting religion is what's great about it is that there's space to reject religion in society. That's not, uh, that, that isn't rejecting society for a thousand years. And you, you, like people weren't out and out atheists because there was no tension in saying it. And so it wasn't a scary thing to say, nor was it a big, nor was it much of a thing. It was just like, "Ah, I don't, I'm a philosopher. I don't really talk much about religion. Wouldn't be a weird thing. Whereas it would be kind of a weird thing in European tradition.
1: Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, nice, yeah, true. I mean, China also has China has like the the weird relationship between well, weird to me, weird to Westerners relationship between religion and philosophy, where their their national religions are more well, the China's national religion is is what exactly, um, but it has a national philosophy, and then it has. The spirit stuff that we were talking about, the yeah, kitchen gods, and
0: the more I've thought about that over the years, the less I think it's a, a the less I think it's real in a one-to-one comparison with anything else. I, I don't think it's much. Different. That's what
1: I'm saying. I, I think I think it's I think it's
0: unique. No, I don't I don't think it's a th- I don't think it's actually even much of a thing. The I mean, there's less there's less tension between religious and religion and philosophy in some ways, but we would only really say that if we ignore the writings of western philosophers that are that have less tension between religion and philosophy in them which we do when we like don't read newton's other tracts or something
1: but here's but here's another question though um, who's reading chinese philosophy when who's it who's it written for
0: well there is an elite chinese literate culture from that Confucius named, he, he called it our, this culture of ours, 2,500 years ago.
1: Sure. Well, who does that, in, who does that entail? Is that the, like the
0: elite? 1% literate.
1: of the population? Oh I mean, yeah, it depends.
0: It, it depends. How many,
1: but how many people are literate? How many people by, are illiterate?
0: By the Ming, you're talking probably about 15% are highly literate. And yeah. maybe there's another 10, 15% who are subliterate, which is very high for, for right. the world at the time
1: there's there's an interesting there's a great scene in um in Rome where someone says to a young octavian future augustus caesar who's just been reading philosophy and working on his poetry you know something about you'll anger the gods and he was like well you know there's no gods you know there <laughs> might be might be a prime mover or something but yeah you know but that was his purview as an intellectual and an elite yeah Whereas um, the people are still sacrificing a goat to whoever because they have a headache, you know?
0: Yeah, and it's um, very similar, very similar in China. The, the, and that freedom of elites to, to, to say that was, was full. Right. Yeah.
1: And then, yeah, in, in, so it seems that maybe Rome is the more. Rome is, more is a great famous.
0: example. Yes. Yeah, I think if Roman culture had, had succeeded and Christianity hadn't come to dominate, you would have seen in Europe a, a society much closer to China than than it ended up being. Oh, thank God!
1: <laughs> There's the one though, because I always come back to this with Christianity. The one thing that I always that I always think is has makes the West a little different, which is that Christianity began the exploration of the egalitarian ideal.
0: Uh, yeah, and that's that's uh, I think that's a valid point. I, I, I think there was a a lot that came with it that wasn't that wasn't so palatable, but uh. yep,
1: there was a lot that would that threw us into a thousand-year dark age that we certainly yep. didn't need to be in. There was a lot of problems there. Yeah. Which, oddly enough, I'm reading about yeah. um right now, like the councils of Nicaea that ended up rigidifying things. But yeah, the, exactly. The yeah. First, the first gift of Christianity yeah is is that we're all equally loved by God. Which yep. was yep. one of the most dangerous ideas the Roman Empire ever had. Well, uh, look at the
0: look at the uh, the communist parable the <laughs> the wine vineyard workers. <laughs> which one? The one where uh, no matter when you show up, you still get paid the same. I don't know that one. It's the the guy who hires laborers in the morning and he says I'll give you this much for the day and then he hires laborers at noon cuz he needs more and I'll get, he says I'll give you this much and he keeps giving them the same amount even if they come late.
1: Oh. Yeah, I don't know that
0: one. Your reward in well, heaven's the same mean? no matter when you come to God. That's kind of the message. Right. Here. Okay. Right. But, uh, the 11, but you the could take hour. that as a you could take that as a uh, as a socialist ideal. As a socialist parable also. <laughs> Which uh, in the movie Matewan, the uh, the kid preacher does. (laughs) That's a great movie. Such a great movie.
1: You know the old the old man joke.
0: Nah.
1: (laughs) I I will destroy it, and Betsy will not be happy. But I'll try. You want to tell it? It's uh, it's uh, Enoch's neighbor has become a socialist. His neighboring farmer and Enoch's, and he explains socialism to Enoch. And Enoch says, So let me get this straight. You got you got two brooms, and I get then one broom. Is that right? And the guy says, Yep, that's right. And then, and then Enoch says, well, I mean, give me this as well. Then if you get two hogs, that means I get one of your hogs. And the neighbor says, Dan, you Enoch, you know I got two hogs.
0: <laughs> And that concludes the episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, we hope you will uh, tune in next time in which we read the works of Li Ju. This podcast was produced by me with intro and outro music also by me. And thanks to Sprout for hosting. And thanks for listening.